Well, good news. This morning, we return to and settle back into our study of the book of Deuteronomy, which began September of 2013. (laughs) And a study, Lord willing, that we will finish by. We won't go there. But I do want to. I do want to go to this place. I I want to remind all of us of why we are studying the book of Deuteronomy, and what the inspiration was for studying this book in the first place. Back in 2013, I was struck by some of the similarities between the people of ancient Israel and us as Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The people of ancient Israel they wandered in the desert for 40 years with no home to call their own. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gathered those wandering people just across the river from the promised land, the land that he is about to give them as a permanent home. So for these people, there will be no more wandering. And in that land and from that land, those people, God has determined among them and from them will radiate the love and the truth of God himself so that the entire world would come to know and fear him as the one and only true and living God. Then I began to think of our story as Redeemer Presbyterian Church. As a church, we began meeting in the Terrace Theater on James Island. And we were in that place for a while, and then we pulled up stakes and we moved to the Low Country Senior Center, also on James Island. And we were there for a period of time, and then we pulled up stakes once again, and we moved downtown to this place, 43 Wentworth Street. And we began to rent this space. We were wandering nomadic people. Then, in June of 2012, a buyer emerged for this property with the intention of gutting this space and turning it into a five-bedroom home. The building next door was to be turned into offices and condominiums. And so by every indication, by every indication, it looked like Redeemer, yes, once again, pull up stakes and begin looking for another place to worship. And after 172 years, it appeared as if the gospel would be snuffed out of this place. But here's the good news. That was not God's plan. And the Lord did what absolutely seemed impossible to us within that narrow 90-day time frame. God enabled our congregation to raise $600,000 of the $1.6 million that was required to purchase these buildings allowing us to borrow $1 million, which was the limit that we were allowed to raise. And when we saw God intervene on our behalf over and over again, when we saw God turn what looked like absolute certain defeat to us into victory, we knew that God wanted us to be in this place, in the heart of the city of Charleston, So that his grace and his love and the gospel truth could continue to radiate in this place and from this place into the city and from the city around the world. 
And so just as God had the promised land for the people of Israel, we knew that God had this place for us. And so we turned to the book of Deuteronomy, the book in which God prepared his people before they took possession of the land to know how it is they could live well in the land that he was giving to them, to live well in the land that he was, had planted them in, and from that place, to radiate the glory and the grace and the goodness of God. And so too, we are here in this place. And we look to the book of Deuteronomy so that we can be prepared to live well in this place where God has planted us. Listen, we cannot squander the blessing of the Lord. We cannot squander the provision he has made for us in providing these buildings for us. The provision he continues to make for us and allowing us to pay for these buildings. We know it isn't just for us. We know it isn't just so we don't have to wonder anymore that God has put us in this place. We are here so that through us, God can bless the city of Charleston. So we return to Deuteronomy this morning to better prepare ourselves to be that blessing and to make a difference in this city for Jesus' sake. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 27, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, Keep all these commands that I give you today. When you've crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan... Set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with the field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. Then Moses and the priests, who are Levites, said to all Israel, Be silent, O Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. On that same day, Moses commanded the people, When you've crossed the Jordan... These tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Nephtali. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's great excitement that we approach it week by week. Because we know that in your word is revealed your truth. 
And so we submit ourselves to the truth of your word this morning, calling upon you once again, Spirit of God, to give us understanding of your word, give us understanding of your truth, giving us the inspiration and the ability to be the people that you have called us to be in this place. We pray your blessing on us now as we come around your word in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So if we're going to really be a blessing to our city, and if we're really going to make a difference here for Jesus' sake, it's absolutely vital that we understand the covenant. What it means to have a covenant God, what it means to be His covenant people. The chapter that we've just read this morning, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, begins the fourth of the five sections that comprise the book of Deuteronomy. I like how Raymond Brown titles each of these sections in his commentary because each of his titles includes the word covenant. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. The covenant God and his covenant people. Here are the, here are the titles that Brown uses. The first section of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 through 4, verse 43, he calls introducing the covenant. The second section, chapter 4 through 11, he calls expounding the covenant. The third section, chapters 12 through 26, he calls applying the covenant. The fourth section that we began this morning, he calls confirming the covenant. The last section, which is chapters 31 through 34, he calls sharing the covenant. So very clearly, just from these titles, to understand Deuteronomy, to understand how it is that God was preparing those people to take their land, we have to understand covenant. So, if you will indulge me, a brief look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and promise not to allow your eyes to to glass over. Do you agree? I think the confession will help us understand covenant. In our confession, chapter 7, it says this. The distance between God and the creature, that's us, is so great that although reasonable creatures, that's us, do owe obedience to Him, God, as their creator, yet they could never have any realization of God as their blessedness and their reward except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, with which he hath been pleased to express by way of the covenant. It's an important truth there about covenant. First, it's an agreement. A covenant is. It's, it's an arrangement. It's, it's an agreement between God and people. And the covenant is the means by which God spans this great distance that exists between us and between Him so that we can get to Him. Now, what's difficult to understand about the covenant is that it always originates with God. That's hard to understand, that the covenant originates with God, the God who needs nothing, the God who is absolutely complete in and of Himself, comes to people with a covenant in hand 
to make an agreement with them. See, we can't get that. It's so different from us. You know, we, we do have needs. You and I do. And that's why we enter into contracts. We have a need of a place to live, and so we put a contract on a house. We need legal assistance, so we sign a contract with an attorney to help us. We need a spouse. Some of you really need a spouse. We need a spouse. And so we sign a marriage contract. We need to keep our money. So just in case the wedding doesn't really work out, the marriage doesn't go so well, we sign a prenuptial contract. See, for us, contracts most often come from our need. And we benefit from them. But God needs nothing. God needs nothing. And so we've got to understand that when we're talking about God's covenant. It's all of His love. It's all of His grace. In initiating a contract, a covenant with us, God does what He did not have to do. God does what He would have been perfectly justified in not doing so that this great gulf between us and God could be spanned and we could have access to Him. God does not lack anything without us, and yet He wants us anyway. Is that good news to you? He lacks nothing without us, and yet He wants us anyway. And so you and I truly need to ponder grace. We need to meditate on it. Because the reality of grace will absolutely overwhelm us. When we think about grace, it will humble us. It will make us thankful. The grace of God will take that judgmental spirit that we have toward others right out of us. And when we meditate on the grace of God, we will become gracious people. So I don't even need to tell you that a church full of people who are humbled by grace, who are thankful for grace, a church that extends grace will have an enormous impact in their community. And that's why understanding the covenant, not just in its legal sense, but in the grace that initiated it, is so important. And so Deuteronomy has been all about the covenant, introducing the covenant in the beginning. Here is the covenant, explaining the covenant in the next section, applying it. Here's what the covenant looks like when it's lived out. And then coming this morning to chapter 27 and seeing that covenant ratified. See, every contract has at least two parties. And both parties must agree to the terms of the the contract and be faithful to them. So when we look here in chapter 27, look in verses 2 and 3. And we read about setting up stones when they enter the promised land. And coating them with plaster. And writing on those stones. And then look in verse 5 and 6. We read about building an altar and sacrificing there, and eating, and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. All of these things are the means by which the people of Israel ratify the covenant. It's their way of saying, yes, Lord, 
We accept your terms. Yes, Lord, we receive this land, the one you promised to us, the land flowing with milk and honey. We receive it as a gift of your goodness and grace. And we agree to your terms in living in this land because we know that living by your terms does not lead to an oppressed life or a a repressed life. Living by your terms leads to a life of blessing. So, you will be our only God, we promise. We will have no other gods before you, we promise. We will not make any idols to bow before, we promise. We will not misuse your name, we promise. We will remember your Sabbath day, we will keep it holy, we promise. We will honor our fathers and honor our mothers, we promise. We will not kill. We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not give false testimony. We will not covet what other people have. We promise. And so when the people erect these stones and and write on them, they're ratifying the covenant. We understand it. We accept it. We agree to its terms. But they're also responding to the grace of God. Our response to your grace, Lord, is obedience. Our response to your grace, Lord, is obedience. That's a good thing to say together. You ready? Our response to your grace, Lord, is obedience. When they erect that altar and sacrifice on it and eat and rejoice in the presence of the Lord, they're responding to the grace of God. Because our response to the grace of the Lord is sacrifice and joy. Our response to the grace of the Lord is sacrifice and joy. (laughs) Sounds like something to say together, doesn't it? You ready? Our response to the grace of the Lord is sacrifice and joy. So again, I don't need to tell you the difference that can be made in our culture by people, by you and by me, who are always responding to the grace of God with obedience, with sacrifice, and with joy. But perhaps the greatest preparation that God is making here on the plains of Moab Moab with this ratification ceremony is that he is putting before these people a new story a new narrative, a better story than they had ever known before. I was reminded by a speaker that I heard this week that you cannot erase your story. You can't change the narrative. Like it or not, it's your story. But the good news is that we are not trapped by those narratives. The good news is that God can replace our story, our narrative, with a better one. No one can change the fact that these people were slaves for 400 years. You can't erase that. No one can change the fact that that slavery was bitter and that they were treated harshly. No one can make it untrue that there was physical and emotional damage done to these people by that narrative. None of that can be erased. But in this covenant 
ratification ceremony, God puts before them a new narrative to replace the old one. They are now the covenant people of God. Look in verse 9. You have become the people of the Lord your God. And so that old narrative of pain and that old narrative of abuse and suffering can be replaced with this new narrative. A life lived as people of God if they will keep the terms of the covenant, which is obedience. And so here's what God does. I love this part of the story. God uses this great drama to put these two narratives before these people. A narrative of disobedience and a narrative of obedience. So look in verse 12. When you've crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So here's the, here's the deal. This choice between these two narratives is so important that God sets up this dramatic moment as one they'll never forget. The people are divided up. You tribes, you stand on this mountain. You tribes, you stand on this mountain. So thousands upon thousands of people. Thousands upon thousands of people over here. Then the Levites, the priests, come and they stand in the valley between the two mountains. And when everyone had taken their places, this great corporate antiphonal call and response begins. And you know what? This is every preacher's golden opportunity, and I can't miss it. Stand up. This is great. All right, you to my left, your e-ball. All right? The mountain of cursing. You on my right, you are Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing. And so when I read the curse, as Scripture says, the people in one voice say amen. And so the Levites would say, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol. And the people shall say, amen. Don't look at me. No, no, no. Look at them. Yeah, come on, face each other. You're not getting the point. Face each other. All right. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or his mother. And the people shall say, Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out, and all the people shall say, Amen. Your turn. Blessed is the man who, car- who does not carve an image or cast an idol, and the people shall say, Blessed is the man who honors his father and mother, and the people shall say, Amen. Blessed is the man who does not move his neighbor's boundary stone, and the people shall say, Amen. Blessed is the man who does not lead the blind astray on the road, and the people shall say, Amen. Blessed is the man who gives justice to the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and the people shall say, Amen. Blessed is the man who holds up the words of this law by carrying them out, and the people shall say, Amen. Thank you. Sit down. Some of you all can explain me to the visitors later. (laughs) For some reason, this chapter doesn't record 
the blessings as we just did it. But when the people arrived in the land, Joshua chapter 8 tells us that this is exactly what happened. Both the blessings and the cursings were read. But chapter 28 that goes with chapter 27 talks about these blessings. So would you look there with me? In chapter 28, we need to hear some of the blessings of this narrative. God says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow His commands, you'll be set high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come up on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord will bless you in the land He's giving you. The Lord will establish you as His holy people, as He promised, if you keep His commands. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you're called by the name of the Lord, and they'll fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity, the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of His bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail, if you pay attention to the commands the Lord gives you and follow them. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. These are the blessings of the Lord. And so the takeaway for these people from this dramatic, visual, auditory moment is this. Two mountains... Two narratives. Here is the story of disobedience. And here is the story and the blessing of obedience. Now which one sounds better to you? As we begin to wind up this morning, I want to return to the confession of faith and its discussion of the covenant. Also in chapter 7. Confession says the first covenant was made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Christ, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained into eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so here is the new covenant. The New Testament of God. It's Jesus. And if we don't understand the Old Covenant, we'll never understand Jesus. Just like the Old Covenant, the new one originates with the Lord. Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped 
But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just like the old covenant, the new covenant is God spanning this gap that exists between us and him. It's God making a way for us to get to him. And now it's through Jesus. Like the old covenant, the new covenant is based on obedience as well. But this time, not our obedience, but Christ's. You know, the people could say from the mountain all day long, Amen, 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 Amen. They could give their assent to both the blessings and obedience, but they were not able to fulfill their part of the covenant. They did not obey as they promised, and neither would we have. So Jesus, in His grace, does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God without flaw, without mistake. The law of God, amen, Lord, amen, 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 with absolute perfection. Jesus obeyed the law of God. And that perfect obedience that he fulfilled, guess what? He gives it to us. It's yours now. You couldn't do it. I did it for you. And so here, my perfect righteousness, my perfect obedience, I'm putting to your account. We need to ponder the grace of Jesus. And then Jesus puts up before us a new narrative. He says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it, what? Abundantly. That is a new narrative placed before us. Life. And not just life, but abundant life. An extraordinary amount of life. A profuse amount of life. Not in stuff. It's a different kind of life. It's, you can't even d- describe this kind of life. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not just stuff, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Life in Jesus and life with Jesus, that is a better narrative. Oh, That's a lot... A life worth having and a story worth telling. And so, if we're going to be a blessing here in the heart of the city of Charleston, you and I have to become new narrative people, right? You and I have to become new narrative people. Our hope for ourselves and our hope for others is that God can replace their old narrative with a better one. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's not about our getting people to stop doing anything. It's not about telling people who are not believers to cease and desist from their sin. Though that's the counsel I often hear Christians offer. 
stop drinking, stop doing drugs, stop having sex outside of marriage. Come on. (laughs) We who are believers, who have the, the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, have difficulty obeying. What are they supposed to do who have not the Spirit of God? Our job is not that. Our job is to put before people the possibility of a new narrative, a better story than they've ever known before. A story in which they take their place in God's bigger story. Listen, God is at work reclaiming this world and its people through Christ. God is at work restoring this world and its people through Christ. God is at work redeeming this world and its people through Christ. And that reclaiming, restoring, redeeming work will be complete when Christ returns and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will come from God out of heaven to earth. No matter what our narrative was, we can be part of this new narrative. Abundant, profuse life with Christ. Abundant, meaningful work with Christ. This narrative elevates us beyond our little, narrow worlds. And I don't mean to be offensive, but that's what our lives must be. If our lives are lived only unto and only for ourselves, our lives will never be anything but small and narrow. But taking our place in God's work in the world, that's amazing. So here's the question. What do you have to offer? How well are you experiencing your new life narrative? This abundant life in Christ so that you have something authentic and something genuine and something compelling to offer others as you tell them about Christ because you've experienced it yourself. How much are you meditating on the grace of the Lord so that you're saturated with it and so that it, His grace drips from you? I'm telling you, our culture needs a new narrative. Our culture needs a new narrative. Our culture needs Christ. And so we must bring Christ to the world and the world to Christ. That's why God has put us in this place. Therefore, let us not squander the opportunity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your word and the truth of it. What a beautiful story, Lord, of your generosity giving these people who did not deserve such a blessing a a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. You bless them by telling them how to live well in that land in a way that will bring honor to you, in a way that will show the cultures around them and the nations of the world that you are the one and only true and living God so that all nations will come to know you and to fear you. Lord, help us as a church now take our place in your story. Thank you. We say thank you again, Lord, for your provision for us of this place. And we ask for your power and for your inspiration that we should not squander the opportunity. 
Lord, our culture needs Jesus. They need a beautiful narrative. What a beautiful narrative of life in Christ. I pray that they will hear that story and know that story and see that story lived out among us. Change our city through us for your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.